Good morning. I'm Weemala, and today is September the 27th, and uh, it's a Tuesday. Beautiful fall day here. Very early fall. The leaves haven't even changed colors much around here. So, uh, it's my kind of weather. So we are still reading from Sharon Salzberg's book, A Heart as Wide as the World. And we're in the middle section called The Practice of Transformation. This is one of her earlier books, but it, it has become my favorite. So let's see. I love all of her essays in this book. They're shorter essays. I'm just going to pick one. Uh, one thing only. It's from the Practice of Transformation section. One thing only. A friend of mine once had to explain to her four-year-old son, whoops, I have to make a change here, sorry. Okay. A friend of mine once had to explain to her four-year-old son that the woman who had been providing child care for him since he was born was going to move away because her child, her child was very attached to this person. My friend carefully told him about this step by step, making sure to say that the caregiver loved him, that they could write and talk on the phone and visit but that she was going to move away and go live with her sister. The little boy listened carefully, then said to his mother, Mommy, tell me that story again, but with a different ending. Well, there are times in our lives when we too wish we could change the ending of the story. Sometimes we lose what we care about. We are separated from those we love. Our bodies fail us as we get older. We feel helpless or hurt, or our lives just seem to be slipping away. These are all aspects of dukkha, one of the principal teachings of the Buddha. Dukkha means suffering, discontent, unsatisfactoriness, hollowness, change. The Buddha said, I teach one thing and one thing only, Suffering and the end of suffering. Suffering in his teaching does not necessarily mean grave physical pain, but rather the mental suffering we undergo when our tendency to hold on to pleasure encounters the fleeting nature of life and our experiences become unsatisfying and ungovernable. When I was first in India and heard the Buddhist teaching on suffering, I felt as though I were being handed a precious gift. Finally, someone was speaking openly about how things really are. Suffering does exist. While there is great pleasure in this world, there is also a great deal of pain. There are wonderful times of coming together and there are also partings and lossings and losses. There are wonderful times of coming together, and there are also partings and losses. 
There is birth and also death. I felt as if I were hearing the truth for the first time, a truth that no one else had wanted to talk about. When any of us tries to close the door on this truth, we create suffering. In our society, the door is often shut because we are taught that suffering is shameful. We may close the door ourselves because we do not want to see our own suffering or reveal it to others. This denial of suffering often occurs in family life. Sometimes there is great suffering in a family. Discord, conflict, insecurity, violence, and in an effort to shield children from the truth, a great silence descends, the silence of denial and of avoidance. If it is ever talked about, the suffering is repackaged and manipulated to look like something else. When talking about painful situations with children, skill and appropriate communication are called for. Yet it is often the case that they are already well aware of what is actually going on. Without external affirmation of what a child feels to be true, a split arises within. A conflict between what the child is told and what the child knows intuitively. Children learn not to trust themselves, let alone trust their parents. Because of patterns like this, acknowledging the truth of suffering is an enormous liberation for all involved. But the Buddha did not just teach suffering. He taught the end of suffering. A friend of mine, upon, a he upon hearing the Buddha's famous statement about teaching one thing only, commented, Suffering and the end of suffering are two things, not one thing. From that point of view, they are clearly two. Either we are suffering or we are free. We know the difference in our bodies and our hearts and the marrow of our bones. However, when we look deeper into this teaching, we begin to unfold its integrity. For in any experience, even a painful one, we can find the end of suffering right in the heart of that moment. Yet when we are face to face with suffering and can't change the end of the story, then how does suffering end? This is one of the most difficult situations we can encounter in our lives. We begin by not denying the pain, by acknowledging the truth of suffering. We do not become resigned to it or apathetic we look at the suffering and discover the immense capacity of our hearts to include all aspects of life in our awareness. When we experience this immensity of heart, we recognize that it is not actually the pain itself that is unnatural and cruel, but the loneliness of feeling alone in the pain. When we open ourselves to this fully, it becomes possible to touch an essential truth about life itself. Suffering of one kind or another is a natural part of existence. Knowing this truth gives our lives wholesome, a wholeness and peace as it frees us from the exhausting postures of pretense and denial. Sometimes when we open to suffering, and see the root of it, we also see the actions we might take 
to ease the suffering. For instance, my friend's young son suffered much less because of his mother's care and support. In this way, the path to the end of suffering includes clearly seeing the pain and replacing denial with awareness and compassion. Countless times when I was with my teacher, Upandita, I said to him, things are really bad. My knees hurt, my back hurts, my mind is all over the place. I can't practice. So many times he listened and then simply responded, this is dukkha, isn't it? Over and over I sat before him, looking at him with enormous expectation, waiting for him to suggest the magic solution, anything that would make the difficulties all go away. As I waited, all my hope and fear evident, he just repeated, this is dukkha, isn't it? While disappointing at first, Upandita's response eventually became very liberating. Nothing I could do or change was going to compare to the power and freedom of first open-heartedly recognizing this is dukkha. Essentially, Upandita's words led me to the understanding that my difficulties weren't just a personal drama, but an opening into an aspect of life. Suffering must be seen and acknowledged, not for the sake of immersing in it or getting lost in it, but in order to be more fully open to the truth and to all beings. There are times when we cannot change the end of the story and make all the suffering go away. But the end naturally changes as we relate to the truth before us with awareness and compassion. This is the one teaching of the Buddha. The truth of suffering is also the path to the end of suffering. It's a good story. I'd like to read the next one because it's uh, another one. It's shorter and it's about facing suffering. So if, uh, if you don't mind, I'll read too. During my first visit to India in 1970, I saw many shocking things. The first shocking experience I had was when I found myself walking down a street in Bombay where young women were displayed in zoo-like cages to be sold as prostitutes. Many of them were children who had been sold by their relatives to the criminal organizations who control the sex trade in India so that the children's families would not starve. The memory of that scene is still vivid in my mind, a horrible portent of things to come. Now, 25 years later, Bombay has an estimated 100,000 prostitutes and the rate of HIV infection is over 52%. HIV is spreading so rapidly throughout the country that the United Nations estimates estimates that India will soon lead the world with the largest population of people who are infected with the disease. The tide of suffering is already inconceivable 
and it seems certain to get worse. And she wrote this book in 1997. The rapidity of the spread of HIV in India is being brought about by many factors. Pervasive poverty means that even government hospitals frequently run short of supplies so that needles and syringes are often reused at great risk of further infection. The powerlessness of women in the culture means that prostitutes who ask men to use condoms might well starve, and wives who do do so might be beaten or simply put out on the street. So the anguish only grows. One of the primary conditions for the growth of suffering in India or anywhere else is denial. Shut, I'm sorry, shutting our minds to the experience of pain, whether in ourselves or others, only ensures that it will continue. Yet when we witness immense suffering and do not deny it or find some way to put it out of our minds, it can seem overwhelming. I remember walking down that street in Bombay, seeing those girls, feeling helpless, wanting to do something, but not knowing what. In order to do anything about the world, we first must have the strength to face it without turning away. By just walking down that Bombay street, I faced a lot. The suffering of women and children, the suffering of imag unimaginable poverty and disease, the suffering of ignorance, the suffering of being able to help only a little bit when so very much needs to be done, and the suffering of not knowing what to do. In India, there are not as many closed doors that hide anguish. But the most crucial door anywhere in the world is in the mind. By opening to the pain we see around us with wisdom and compassion, we start to experience the intimate connection of our relationship to all beings. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. said, in a real sense, all of life is interrelated. All persons are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. When we recognize the truth of interrelatedness, we are moved to act in ways that can make a difference. And whatever action we take, whatever, insuffi however insufficient it might seem, stands as testimony to our willingness to make someone else's yearning for release part of our own. The truth of our interconnection, of how our suffering and our freedom from suffering are intimately interwoven with that of others, is present at all times for us to see, if we are open to it. It is present in the worldwide spread of AIDS, a disease that knows no boundaries. The first time I heard of AIDS, it was an exotic and rare disease, 
and it was unimaginable that I would ever know anybody who would die from it. Now I have several friends who are suffering from AIDS and several who have died because of it. There are few people anywhere on the planet whose lives have not been touched in some way by this disease. So in some subtle but very real way, I see that my own suffering and freedom from suffering are clearly interwoven with being willing to face the pain of those caged children in Bombay, as well as facing my own disquiet in becoming aware of their situation. The shift in my worldview to include them rather than ignore them or reject them as not having anything to do with me is the same shift in perspective that dispels our deeply held mirage of isolation. In the delusion of separation, we may sense an oasis of connection to just a few people, maybe just our families and friends. We may create a fence around the oasis to protect and defend it, then a fort and ultimately a whole way of life perpetuates the illusion. We get lost in feelings of disconnection and a sense of the futility of caring. It is only by not denying reality that we move into a knowledge of our interconnection with the whole of life. When we relate with wisdom and compassion, there we find true shelter in a community of all beings. Opening to the suffering of others may bring us uneasiness, but we and potentially the world are transformed by that opening. We become empowered to respond to the suffering with an unfathomable love rather than the fear or aversion. Only love is big enough to hold all the pain of this world. So why don't we just sit together and uh, have, let's just sit silently. That's a very powerful essay that we just read. So one is about suffering and one is a, an instant of how we have to be, we have to recognize our mutual uh, connection with all beings and often that's includes suffering. So let's be Be in your posture so your back feels straight and you feel upright. The body knows you're moving into just a quiet state. And just be with the breath. Be aware of the body breathing. And just stay with that.
Keep coming back to the breath whenever you become distracted. Just be aware of the present moment. Let this be a calming practice wherever you are, whatever you're doing, coming back to your breath. Coming back to the moment. Now we can end this short practice by setting our intentions for the day. May everything that I do and say and think today be done not only for my own benefit, but for the benefit of all living beings, human beings, non-human beings. May we be a refuge May we be at peace. Thank you. I'll see you again Thursday.